Power and Paradox by the Kinky Pet, Chapter 30. Summary. Chapter dedicated to one made of glass for epic cheerleading. Thank you, dear. Notes. Warnings. Sexism, orientationism, and ableism. But if you made it to Chapter 30, I doubt that will surprise you in this world. I particularly agonized over this chapter, so, uh, yeah. Hope it works. Enjoy. When Tony woke up, Jarvis was still reading Stark Industries' quarterly report, though he must have been on the 30th repetition by then. Tony'd slept for 11 hours. 13.25% increase in revenue from... Okay, Jarvis, we're good. You can stop reading that now, buddy, Tony called. With pleasure, sir. There was a tiny dagger on his nightstand. Tony smiled and threw back the covers. Ten minutes later, he was scrubbed, dressed, and on his way to the workshop where Jarvis had coffee ready and waiting. Time to get some shit done! Tony ran his fingers through his wet hair. Fuck those assholes anyway. Put us in lockdown, Jay, Tony said. I need to focus on finishing Cap's suit, then getting Bodo and Hawk up to speed. No time to lose. They're being cleared for duty soon. Of course, Jarvis said smoothly. Shall I inform your teammates? Tony hesitated. Nah, it's need to know, Jay. If they start pestering me, we'll deal with it then. You have an alternate plan for nourishment, sir. Hey, just because I've been letting Bruce and Cap feed me lately doesn't mean I've forgotten how to call for delivery myself. Sheesh. Tony rolled his eyes. So, speaking of, breakfast burrito, stat. Ordering now, sir. In the workshop, Tony unrolled the bolt of polyaramid and cracked his knuckles. ACDC, and here we go. Maybe he'd start with Natasha's. Oh my god, Tony, I'm so sorry. I had no idea when I did the interview. He said that he was a freelance journalist and said the story was gonna, I don't know, humanize the Avengers or something, and it would be good PR about how you're, like, not a snob and stuff. If I'd known he was writing for the star or he would edit what I said like that, I swear I never would have talked to him, not even for the money. I'm really, really sorry. Please don't hate me. Seriously, I had no idea. Okay, okay, but do hate what's-his-face, Marco, because he's a douche and did it on purpose. Seriously, if he ever comes back to the restaurant, I'm gonna pee in his soup. That reporter, too. Anyway, I'm really sorry. Oh, it's Matt, by the way. Matt Clark, from The Lion? I'll try you good later, I guess. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Bye. Tony had already done all the piercing and pinning on Natasha's uniform and was about to start stitching. Tony considered calling Rody or Pepper a few times, but he'd already talked to them and sworn he was just fine. He sort of hated to undo those reassurances, so he stayed in the workshop with ACDC, Beyonce, and Dummy, insisting he was fine. And little by little, he was. Fuck those assholes. Who fucking cares? Hey Dummy, pass me the bobbin tray, would you? A lot of people have already eloquently called the star out for its sensationalist August issue in which normal people expose the supposedly shameful secrets of the celebrities they dated. The two elements that have gotten the most attention so far have been 1. The shaming of Ryan Gosling for failing to conform to orientationist expectations, the star's implication being that if he'd just dumb up, he wouldn't get top drop and display emotions or vulnerability, which are too subby. 2. The fact that submissives who put restrictions on subspace or cannot reach subspace often have been the victims of abuse, assault, or suffer from PTSD. Since Tony Stark's traumatic experiences are a matter of public record, the star especially should have shown more compassion and awareness. This has sparked an important conversation about orientationism, subspace, and trauma. The points above are important and valid, and I in no way wish to diminish them, but I'd like to add another. Doms are not entitled to subspace. Doms are not entitled to subspace, just like they are not entitled to sex. Putting a sub under is a privilege, not a right. It is even more intimate than sex and requires far more trust, particularly from the submissive. So why did most of the doms interviewed about Mr. Stark describe his rejection of subspace as if it were a personal slight or failing? On many comment boards, there are people defending Mr. Stark by arguing that his past trauma makes him unable to go into subspace, and that it's not a choice. 
but why would it be bad if that were his choice? Why does he need a reason other than, I don't want to go into subspace with you? And since these doms were willing to sell his intimate details for personal gain, it seems there was very good reason for Mr. Stark not to trust them. Submission in any form is a beautiful gift subs give to their chosen dominance. Subspace is not a dominance right. Let's recognize the culture of dominant entitlement for what it is. The first step to ending it is recognizing it. Hashtag liberationism. Hashtag dominant ally. Sir, Mr. Clock has left a fifth voicemail. Hey, what is this shit? Tony asked peevishly. I thought I said lockdown. Lockdown protocol allows me to alert you of personal communications I deem relevant, Jarvis answered, then added a little coolly. Unless, of course, you choose to modify my programming. Tony sighed. Yeah, yeah, okay, I'll email him later or something. Put the kid out of his misery. Tony had been surprised to see Matt had talked to the star about him, though his comments really only sounded bad with the star's spin. After all, it was true Tony had gone on a second date to the line with hedge fund manager Marco Piolini, that decided Piolini was an asshole and ditched him to go home with their handsome waiter instead. Matt was a sweet kid. They'd hooked up, or dated or whatever, for the next week or two. Tony remembered Matt fondly though he wasn't the brightest. Tony wasn't exactly surprised that he'd fallen for the star's act. Also, Dr. Bannon and Agent Barton had both asked again to visit the workshop. And? And I informed them you were in the middle of a delicate project and asked not to be disturbed. Thanks, Tony paused. Jarvis would have said something if anyone else had tried to visit, right? Right. No need to ask. Tony took a sip of coffee and asked, And Steve? Captain Rogers has made no attempt to visit the workshop. Oh, okay. Good and Tony knew why Natasha wasn't trying to visit. Her spider sense recognized that he was in his lair for a reason and didn't want visitors. But Steve... In three days, Steve hadn't asked after him, or wanted to watch Star Trek, or tried to come down and feed him? Tony shrugged. Whatever. Just as well. He was busy. Sexology. Professor William Walding, M.D. Copyright 1904. The fierce and indomitable energy of the American people, which has survived the most mighty social and political revolution of this world, has seized upon the bobble of women's, or as some say submissives, rights, and bids fair to dignify it into a terrible engine of destruction. The mere discussion of such a revolution is a possibility. The bare toleration of the idea is sufficient in itself to injure the mind and to operate powerfully upon the imagination of these impressionable creatures, to excite in them feelings of indignation and dissatisfaction with their present condition. Every argument that ingenuity can suggest is brought to bear in assuring them that they are deprived of certain inherent rights by an unjust and tyrannical age. We cannot imagine how dominance can be reformed by investing submissives with the ballot, but we can readily believe that many submissives were thereby become debased. The chivalric veneration with which man now regards woman arises from the distance as well as the difference between them. In fact, from the advantages she possesses as woman. This would vanish with her political equality, and she would lose that respect and deference with which she has hitherto been so generously endowed. She'll be treated rather as man than as woman. She cannot have the advantage of both sexes at once. Nature, not legislatures, has assigned to the two sexes and orientations their respective spheres. Tony emerged on Thursday. He headed up to the common room and didn't realize he'd been expecting to find Steve there until he was disappointed. Tony made a sandwich and lingered a while before going back to the workshop, emerging from time to time to ray the refrigerator. When Tony didn't run to Steve or anyone else around the tower all day, he had Jarvis ask Steve if he wanted to watch Star Trek. Jarvis replied that, Captain Rogers regrets that he's unable to join you this evening. Tony shrugged and ended up suggesting Spinal Tap to Clint. Clint recited every line while Tony puttered on his tablet. On Friday, Clint and Natasha invited everyone out for drinks with a bunch of other S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, but Tony could think of a few things less delightful than alcohol plus agents, so nope. Here Natasha on the phone with Steve, trying to coax him out and saying in a significant tone that Christine hoped he'd come, but to no avail. So when Bruce and Tony had Jarvis suggest Star Trek and Thai food, Tony was kind of surprised to get another, Captain Rogers regrets he's unavailable, but thanks you for the invitation. 
Saturday disappeared in a whirlwind of work for Stark Industries, urgent calls from Pepper, and trying very hard not to yell at anyone in R&D. By 8pm, Tony was exhausted and just wanted to relax. Pepper was in Chicago, Rhodey was still abroad, Clint was out drinking with agents again, and, oddly enough, Bruce and Natasha were at the ballet. Tony had Jarvis call Steve with the usual offer of Star Trek, and felt at once irritated and disappointed when he got another, Captain Rogers is otherwise engaged, sir. Tony frowned. Did he go out? Jarvis paused a moment before answering. Captain Rogers has not left his floor. Tony shook his head. Cap had projects of his own, right? Maybe he was working on something and didn't want to get out of the groove. Well, Tony knew what that was like. He'd ask Steve about it next time he saw him. Sexology, Professor William Walding, M.D. Copyright, 1904. Now we come to the somewhat delicate and sad topic of the inverted, the female-dominant and male-submissive. You may know some personally, though the condition is happily rare. It is profoundly sorrowful and at times shocking outcome for young people presenting, and those near them should do all they can to soften the blow. The inverted are in a tragic position, and as science has now shown, they have no control over this outcome. They deserve compassion rather than derision. Show them the same kindness you would show to a barren couple, the crippled, or the disfigured. Here is woman blessed with some of the instincts and inclinations of the dominant, but deprived the full strength and reason of man. Here is a gentle and sensitive submissive, bereft of life-giving potential, blessed with none of woman's soft, familial gifts, and yet plagued by man's more bestial passions. At 9 a.m. the next morning, Tony padded into the communal kitchen, still in his pajamas. Clint and Natasha were talking quietly and picking out some cantaloupe while Bruce stood by the toaster. Tony stopped short. No, Steve. Isn't it Sunday? Tony blurted. Clint laughed. They don't call you a genius for nothing. Bruce was already handing him a cup of coffee, because Bruce was the best, while Tony glared at Clint. Cap makes brunch on Sundays, Tony said. Not this Sunday, apparently, Clint shrugged. I think he deserves to sleep in for once. He shouldn't have to cook for us losers all the time. Tony chugged down some coffee, then shook his head. No, no, that's not... Something was wrong. Cap liked cooking brunch. He always hummed whatever crappy church music they played that week. He'd been trying out new recipes from the Big Book of Brunch cookbook he'd checked out at the public library, even though there are tons of free recipes online. Steve smiled more at Sunday brunch than just about any other time. Tony bit his lip. Actually, Bruce said with a pensive frown, I haven't seen Steve in a few days. You? Clint nodded. Yeah, maybe Wednesday? He's been busy with something. He shrugged again, but was frowning a little now, too. Bruce shook his head, then asked, Jarvis, is Steve okay? Captain Rogers is in excellent health, Jarvis answered. And yeah, that wasn't at all ominous. Maybe he just wants some time to himself, Natasha said quietly, her expression perfectly neutral, that look that said, I know all the answers, but I'm not going to tell you because I don't feel like it. Tony stared at her for a few long moments, then let out an exasperated noise. Whatever, Tony said, turning for the elevator. Later, he called over his shoulder. Jarvis, Tony said, take me to Cap's floor and let him know he's got company on the way. Tony inhaled some more of his coffee. Sir? When the elevator doors opened, Rogers was waiting, barefoot and dressed in his navy blue sweatsuit. Definitely not right, he thought. Mr. Stark, he said, body stiff. What can I do for you? Tony blinked. Mr. Stark? I come visit you and all of a sudden I'm Mr. Stark again. Sorry, uh, Tony. Steve gave him a wan smile. Did you need something? Tony shrugged and wandered a little further into Steve's apartment. It was unchanged since his last visit. No art, no bric-a-brac, no nothing. He hadn't even rearranged the furniture, except for a few things on the coffee table It looked like the showroom of a furniture store. What's going on? Tony asked. You've been kind of scarce lately. No Star Trek, no visiting the workshop, and now no brunch? Tony gestured. No church either, by the looks of it. Steve's eyes narrowed. I think God will forgive me for missing mass once every blue moon, he frowned. 
and I'd hardly have expected you to judge. Tony clutched his coffee in one hand and held the other up in surrender. Not judging, he protested. Just saying, it's not like you. They stood there, looking at each other uneasily. Okay, Tony, now what? Are you okay? Tony asked eventually. I'm fine, Steve said, instantaneously, by rote. You don't really seem fine, Tony said hesitantly. What's the matter? Maybe I could... help? Ugh, didn't mean for it to sound so uncertain. No, Steve shook his head with a sad smile. But thank you for stopping by. Steve turned away, clearly intending it as dismissal, and went back to the couch where Tony now noticed he'd set up a little nest of blankets and pillows. His notebook and sketch pad were on the coffee table, along with a big pitcher of water and a small cup. Shit, shit, shit. Tony hovered indecisive, really wishing Pepper were there or he had a brain-to-brain -brain link that would let him get advice without anybody knowing. Uh, weird. Anyway. Steve hadn't actually asked him to leave. Running on instinct, Tony crossed the room to stand beside the couch. Steve looked up, maybe a little surprised, but mostly he just seemed exhausted. Tony laid a hand on his shoulder and asked again, which he could come up with something better to say. Steve, are you sure you're okay? Steve shrugged and looked away. After a few long moments, he said, It's November 19th. There was a long pause, but Tony didn't press. His heart was racing. Steve swallowed, then cleared his throat and added softly, Today, it's Bucky's birthday. My best friend. He'd have been 29. In 1942, anyway. Shit. Steve seemed to gather himself. So that's why, he said. I haven't been feeling very... sociable. Tony hesitated. Steve still didn't ask him to leave, so Tony walked over and took a seat on the far end of the couch. Steve glanced over at him in surprise, or maybe confusion for a moment, then fixed his gaze on the coffee table again. Wanna watch Star Trek? Tony asked. Steve laughed. It was a sharp, brittle noise. No, not really in the mood. Tony bit his lip. We could order brunch, Tony suggested. Steve shook his head. Tony swallowed. You could tell me about him, Tony offered softly. Your best friend? Steve's brow creased. He didn't look at Tony or speak. Tony added, I mean, sure, Bucky Barnes, Howling Commando. He's in the history books and the cartoons in that exhibit at the Smithsonian, but that's not... Tony shook his head. I mean, there's a lot of press out there on War Machine, but that's not really him. Not my roadie. So if you wanted to tell me about him, your best friend. Tony paused. Steve just frowned at the coffee table in silence. Tony shifted uneasily. Or I could leave you alone. Sorry, I... He was tough, Steve said quietly, eyes still unfocused. And brave and loyal. Steve gave a wistful smile. He taught me to fight. He said... You tuck your thumb to your fist like that, you're going to break it. Thumb on the outside or you're going to hurt worse than the other guy. Steve turned to look at Tony. Do the books ever say how we met? Tony shook his head, half afraid to speak lest he say the wrong thing and make Steve close up again. But Steve seemed to be waiting for an answer, so he said, Childhood friends, right? Yeah, Steve said with a sad little smile. We met when I was eight. He was my first friend. At least my first friend my own age. Steve went quiet again. How did you two meet? Tony prompted quietly after a few moments. Steve seemed to come back to himself. He turned to Tony and pulled his knees up onto the couch. Do you really want to hear this? Yes, Tony said, if you don't mind telling me. I... I guess I could start at the beginning, if you're sure you want to hear it. Very sure, Tony said emphatically, and scooted a little closer. Steve nodded and seemed to gather his thoughts. He poured himself a glass of water and took a sip. Bucky lost his mom when she was bringing him into the world, Steve began. 
And his father, well, I never knew the man, but he had a reputation in Brooklyn. He was a boxer, won some big prize fights, but had trouble with betting and drinking, so he lost money faster than he wanted. He wasn't very happy with his life, and he'd take it out on people. Steve hesitated, and his voice went low. Sometimes Bucky, I think, though he never said so. Eventually, when Buck was ten, his dad was killed in a bar fight, knifed in the side. So Buck went to Magdalene House, the orphanage next to the hospital where my mom worked. It was attached to St. Mary's, where we went to Mass, and where the school was. Tony nodded. Steve glanced away and continued, eyes a little unfocused. You know, I was real sickly as a kid. I missed almost a full year of school when I was seven, and I couldn't play outside because of the smog and dust and, well, I couldn't have kept up with the other kids anyway, so I was mostly inside. But my mom was at work a lot, weekends too. So a lot of the time it was just me and my books and my drawing things. He shook his head. Lucky I was a strong reader. Then he shrugged. Then again, lots of motivation and time to practice, I guess. Steve looked over again as to confirm Tony was still listening. Tony nodded and took a sip of his coffee. Steve smiled. There's this priest at St. Mary's, Father Gabe, who'd visit the parishioners too sick to come to Mass. He'd make the rounds and always come to visit me for a bit. We all adored him. He had a limp because he'd been injured in the Great War. But he cut a pretty dashing figure, young for a priest. His sweetheart died of tuberculosis while he was in the trenches, and he went into the clergy. Anyway, Father Gabe also worked at the kids at Magdalene House, and Bucky just arrived and was giving them hell. He had his father's temper and some of his fight training, and was pretty mad at the world, you know? He'd had free run before, since his dad was never around much. Now there were all these rules and other kids, and he was angry and a real big guy for his age, and, well... Steve grimaced. He wasn't adjusting well. Steve toyed at the edge of a pillow as he spoke. Father Gabe, he just had this way of seeing people. He knew Buck wasn't a bad kid, just angry and hurting, and being cooped up for the first time wasn't helping, so the next time Father Gabe made his rounds, he brought Bucky along. While Father Gabe talked to Mom, he asked Buck to go check on me. He'd hardly said two words to me when I had one of my spells, coughing and I couldn't breathe right, and I was real small, and Bucky panicked and thought I was going to die right then and there in front of him. Steve rolled his eyes. I guess Father Gabe's theory was that since I was about the furthest thing from a threat a kid could be, Buck wouldn't feel like he had to try and pull rank or keep up on the pecking order around me or something. Anyway, the attack passed. They always did, eventually. But I'd given Bucky a good scare. He asked Father Gabe if he could stay and sit with me instead of going on to Mrs. O'Connor's. Mom said okay, so Buck stayed. We played checkers. I showed him some of my drawings. Steve smiled, his expression distant. Tony could picture it somehow. Steve, tiny and sick, Bucky, this big, strong kid, a dingy tenement walk-up. In his mind, they sit together in a window seat, looking down at the street. The bustling city little Steve is too sick to join. Tony's throat felt tight. The next time Father Gabe made his rounds, Buck asked to come see me. Mom was at work. He stayed all afternoon. We talked and I read to him, storybooks Mom brought from the library. Bucky wasn't a very good reader yet, even though he's older than me, so eventually I helped him with homework. And he told me about the fights his dad had won, how to throw a punch when we listened to the Lone Ranger on the radio, then made up the story ourselves whenever the reception cut out. Pretty soon, Father Gabe had given Bucky special permission to come visit me every day after school and bring over my assignments. It was... Steve's voice went rough and Tony thought he saw tears shining in Steve's eyes before he turned his head. It was a good thing he did for two sad little boys, one so angry and the other so lonely he... Tony felt a sharp twist of sorrow for Steve, at all he'd lost, but also a shameful and unexpected jolt of envy. The summer Tony turned seven, he'd actually managed to make friends with the new maid's daughter. They'd climbed trees and played hide-and-seek all over the grounds for three glorious weeks. She'd been enraptured with the robot Tony had made for her birthday, but Howard didn't approve of a Stark being friends with a help. He'd offered to pay for daycare, and little Sarah never came back. Father Gabe gave us each a little St. George medallion before we left for basic training, and we wrote to him from France, Father said, tone wistful. He gave a little shrug. 
Mom said we were good for each other, Steve continued, so that a little of my gentle rubbed off on him, and a little of his tough rubbed off on me, Steve smiled, adding, and we were both already pretty stubborn to begin with. As kids, I think Bucky made it his mission to toughen me up, Steve said. I guess he figured that I'd have just that much more need to stand up for myself, what with how sick I was and my size, which, well, since we assumed I'd be inverted. Tony winced inwardly, and made a mental note to talk about that with Cap later. Seriously, you. Inverted went out about the same time as Negro. But now wasn't the time. I guess it worked a little better than he'd meant it to, Steve added with a rueful chuckle. Once we got older, he was always giving me guff for getting into fights and having the shit kicked out of me. Steve actually looked nostalgic for getting beat up, which was weird, but Tony kinda got it. Tony's coffee had gone cold. He drank it anyway. And Buck was always making plans from the time we were little. We were gonna go west to California and strike gold. We'd get a flat together. I'd draw for the newspapers and he'd work in construction. Or he'd go into fighting like his dad and win a real big fight with tons of money. We'd be set for good. Or we'd open a gin joint together and live above it. But it was always... He'd say, You and me, Stevie. Till the end of the line. Steve swallowed heavily. I always reckoned I'd go out young. Wouldn't have to face things without him. Even with the war on. Even once I had the serum. It seemed impossible that he'd... He was just so strong. Larger than life. And... Steve squeezed his eyes shut and took a few deep breaths. I just... Steve looked over at Tony, his eyes red-rimmed and his voice roughed. I just miss him so damn much, you know? Yeah, Tony said, nodding. His own eyes were prickling, thinking of Rody. I know, buddy. Steve was all curled in on himself, knees up to his chest, arms tight, body closed off. Tony wanted to crawl across the couch and wriggle into Steve's arms, offer him some human contact, some comfort, but he felt blocked, like he just couldn't. It made Tony feel helpless, and he hated that. Pathetic, terrible platitudes, hollow philosophical sound bites, religious reassurances Tony didn't believe in, raced through his mind, and he rejected one after another after another. The silence stretched, heavy and doleful. Steve glanced over at Tony, then looked away, shoulders hunched. Uh, sorry for talking your ear off like that. What? No! Tony said urgently, and a little too loud. No, thank you for telling me about him. Don't... Tony reached out and grabbed Steve's hand. He startled the touch, but when Tony squeezed, he squeezed back. Don't be sorry. I'm glad you told me. Steve nodded and gave Tony a tentative smile. He took a deep breath and said, I'm... I'm gonna go to the bathroom, but then... Then maybe we could watch Star Trek? And you said something about ordering brunch? Tony nearly tripped over his tongue in his eagerness to agree. And as Steve's eyes were bloodshot when he came back from the bathroom, Tony wouldn't dream of mentioning it. Sexology. Professor William Walding, M.D. Copyright 1904. There's a deplorable trend in many of today's youth to commit lewd acts in the very conjugal act itself, without benefit of marriage, and even to pay court falsely with no intention to marry. It is a particularly despicable and growing practice for a young dominant to entice a vulnerable, inverted submissive to fornication, holding forth false promises of care, affection, and matrimony, fitting a mere short-term obstacle to their union, a union which this dominant in no way desires from one able to give him children. To prey upon these inverted submissive, sad inability to produce life, and use their vulnerability for a wicked dominant's selfish pleasure is a grave sin. It is a cruel deception unfitting Christian charity and beneath a dominant's honor, which should show a tender and generous concern for those lacking as many blessings and strengths. There are now some Christian dominations that see fit to marry the inverted, not only to each other, a perfectly natural practice, but more controversially to those who do not share the affliction. Episcopalians will now marry dominants and submissives irrespective of their sex, and it seems the Catholics are soon to join them in this most critical to practice are Baptists and Presbyterians. It is beyond the scope of this book to engage with such theological concerns, however, and I refer you instead to the work of my colleague, Reverend Hezekiah Daniels.
Notes. Thanks for reading. I really hope that turned out okay. The first section of sexology is drawn almost verbatim from a real book you can read about on my Tumblr. The other two sections I made up, but with conscious imitation of William Walding's styles and attitudes. I have such high hopes for the Thanksgiving chapter, but it's proving particularly hard to write. Add in that, the next six weeks are going to be some of the busiest, most important, and most stressful in my career, and I'm feeling a little low, anxious, and very busy. So, uh, any extra cheerleading you want to send my way, here or on Tumblr, would be extra, extra appreciated. And please don't worry, the story won't be abandoned. I have the bulk of it plotted and a good bit drafted already. You're all simply wonderful. Thank you for reading this. This is Zanship. I have actually read a book entitled Human Sexuality that was printed around the same time as, as William Walding's book. And it has very similar things. Though it actually talks about foreplay as part of sex and how important it is, and that's exciting. But it's so, so sexist. And it strikes me that it's over a hundred years now that that has been a thing. But parts of it are still so pervasive. I've dealt with men and women both who still firmly believe that a woman's place is at home. And that that is the only place she should ever choose to be. And whilst feminist ideas say that women are fully free to choose that, forcing it on someone or saying that someone has to do it is still awful and terrible. And the expectation that comes with that is just god-awful stupid. I will never understand it. But I just feel so sad for Steve. Because I think everyone forgets in this universe that... For Steve, it's been maybe a year since everything happened, since Bucky died, since since so many of his friends have died, and, and so many of his people are gone, and he just, he's grieving, and he he doesn't show it at all because he wasn't supposed to. Men in dominance aren't supposed to be vulnerable like that. It's just sad that no one is recognizing that. He's a young, young man, really. I don't know. just want to give Steve a hug. <laughs>